I just wanted to say very briefly, whether God's prompting me to or not, I'm not sure, but if you're a person who feels you've been wandering for a while, maybe at one stage um, you felt that you had a love for Jesus and that it's, it's grown dim and that it feels like you've been wandering around. I think that the Lord would simply say, it's time to come home now. Amazing thing about our Savior is that he doesn't require penance. And that you don't have to walk across broken glass or punish yourself. He actually runs to embrace you. It's the way Christ described it. It does require humility on our part, but he wants his people to come home. And he just says quite simply, as he said in the parable of the prodigal son, it's time to come home now. And you sense it in your heart when the Holy Spirit's speaking to you and you think, I feel that I'm homesick and that there is something missing in my life. The church here exists for partly for the purpose of helping such people find their way back home. And I want to invite you to really weigh what maybe God is doing in your heart right now. And if you want to pray with me at the end, I'd be delighted to. Part of coming home is joining a family where you'll feel a sense of a sense of the brotherhood or sisterhood and the sense that others are walking with you. And that's why being in a church is so vital. We're going to jump right in. Daniel chapter 2. We're really picking up the story at this stage halfway through. So I want you to put your eyes down on verse 31. Remember last week, Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, has had an ominous dream. He searched around his whole land to find men who can, who can reveal the dream to him as a test, see if they actually know anything have any spiritual insight, if they can actually tell him what he dreamed about and then tell him what it means. And no one was able to do it except this one man, Daniel, who's a Hebrew, a worshiper of the living God. He and his friends pray, they seek God, and then God reveals the dream to Daniel. And so he's now the messenger who has to go to Nebuchadnezzar, tell him what he dreamed, why he dreamed it. And so the great theme that we kind of were uncovering last week is that the God we worship is a God who speaks. So what does he say? Verse 31. This is Daniel. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. The, this image was mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, broke them in pieces, and then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors." And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. 
This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king And he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. God speaks. The question was burning in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, which Daniel now begins to open up, is, well, if God is going to speak to you, what is he going to say? And I think that what comes out from this chapter is we'll kind of see as we unfold it, is that certainly there's a measure of criticism. I think that um, a lot of people dislike the negative tone in which um, Christians speak sometimes. They consider it to be judgmental. But if you really think about this, what would you make of a God, or indeed of a faith, that has nothing critical to say to the world in which we live. If it has nothing critical to say, then it really sees nothing wrong with the world. And all of us know that there are things wrong with the world. So the first thing he says is something critical, but with that, there's a real sense of warning. There's a real sense of danger in what Daniel's unfolding. And I want us all to kind of, as we uncover what the message of this chapter is, I want us all to recognize that If God were to speak to you right now as a believer, in fact he is as we open the word of God, that sometimes he speaks with warning. That there's real danger that you can be exposed to. And then of course the other side to that is hope. Hope only comes on the back of threat, on the back of danger, on the back of 
things not being right. But thankfully, the God we love and worship brings hope. And so I want us to, to look at this, what this means. I think it's profoundly relevant. The revelation, the picture, the prophecy, the dream, is what you could think of as a very wide-angle scope that covers hundreds of years of history, even, in fact, millennia of history, if you take it in its full range. And so one of the great doctrines that it teaches us is what we as Christians call the sovereignty of God, which just means that he is, he's in control, that God is sovereign over all of history. Now, I know when, when you speak at that level, it's very easy as a Christian, especially a comfortable Christian in an affluent context, to switch off. Because certainly when you're a Christian living under extremely difficult circumstances and corrupt regimes and suffering, the sovereignty of God is probably one of the most comforting things that people can ever hear. But if you're somebody who is kind of cruising, a little bit apathetic, then friends, I know that immediately if I start talking about God's sovereignty, you can just switch off. I want you to understand, though, that the message of this is no less relevant to you in your specific circumstances than it was to Nebuchadnezzar in the 6th century B.C., the reason I say that is because I think a lot of people think about God's sovereignty the way we think about a bowling alley. You know how if you're a kid or just very uncoordinated, you can pull up the two barriers at either side of the alley, can't you? So as you lob the ball down, it really doesn't matter what angle it leaves your arm. That thing is going to hit a skittle or ten skittles, um, but either way you're going to score because it's going to bounce from side to side and hit the barriers left to right until eventually you hit something. And uh, it's no credit to you at all. And a lot of people think about God's sovereignty like that, that really he's kind of like, um, as history is like the ball flying down the alley, God is sort of the barriers at either side, just letting it bounce and just sort of nudging it to eventually it's going to get roughly where he wants it to go. Maybe it'll hit one skittle, maybe it'll hit ten. But either way, you know, God's just generally vaguely in control. You can look at a chapter like this which describes a succession of empires and say, well, that's kind of how it's working. That God is, uh, you know, he's just like these barriers. But you see, a biblical understanding of God's sovereignty is so much more detailed, more complete than, than that than what we're imagining. Jesus talked about a sparrow not falling to the ground unless the Heavenly Father knows, which is to say he has an interest that his eyes are on every circumstance of your life. He said that he knows how many hairs you have on your head, or you know, in my case, how many hairs you're losing from your head. <laughs> that God, our Heavenly Father, is very interested in the details of your life. So, so rather than just imagining the two barriers put, being pulled up on the bowling alley, that he, he's more like, it's more like he, he carries the ball from the hand down onto the alley and then rolls it millimeter by millimeter as it goes down and hits the skittles. God's control in every circumstance of life is, is, is imminent, is, is intimate, is perfect. This is why Christians take great comfort in the midst of suffering because they know God's in it and God's got a good purpose through it. Now, the reason I want to underline that for you is because I think that the message of this, this prophetic dream is as relevant and as urgent to every one of us and to every Londoner now as it was to Nebuchadnezzar hearing it for the first time. Because 
it calls for the exact same response that Nebuchadnezzar was being called to. And so what I want us to see, I'm going to break it down for you into, into three sections and we'll try and just um, get the big sweep of what's going on here. But I want to talk to you about the warning, the hope, and then the response. And friends, let's understand what it is calling for us today. So much of what we've been singing and also the prayers that were coming out from your mouths just resonate so intimately with what I think the message is of this dream. So pay attention. Let me begin here with the warning. If I can summarize it for you, let me put it in a sentence. I think it's this. The warning of this dream is that what you build may crumble. What you build with your life may crumble. Where does it begin? Daniel says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. That word image, just ask yourself, where in the Bible does that word image crop up? It's a loaded word. Often it, it crops up in the case of idols, that men make idols, they make images to worship. But you know, the first time that it crops up in the Bible is talking about Adam. You remember in, in the book of Genesis when God says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And then he says that he'll rule over everything on, on the planet. The image of God was invested into the first man because he, before any idol images were made, he was one who so reflected the glory of God that all the creatures of the world, in a sense, worshipped him. And by worshipping him, they were worshipping God. Adam was called to this kind of lordly authority over all creation. He was meant to be just shy of divine. He could live forever. He had almost absolute authority over the planet on which he dwelled. And so he was only just short of being a God himself. And God had given that to him. And so when we're reading here about this, this image that we see, I think our minds are meant to recollect something of Adam and then something of what's happened to mankind. Because this, this in this chapter represents everything that mankind has become instead of being like Adam before he fell. And so as you begin to read on, what you see about this image is that it's something totally grotesque, degenerate, demented, twisted. And the picture of it is so overwhelming in Daniel's mind. He describes it in three ways. He says it's mighty, that it's exceeding brightness, and that its appearance is frightening. It speaks of its might, of its power, the power of mankind in ruling. It speaks of its brightness as in the glory of mankind. Because even when man has fallen into sin and we do many ugly things, there's still something extraordinarily beautiful about mankind, isn't there? That's why the, the image is shining, it's radiant, and it's captivating. But then with that, the dark side, that, that Daniel says that it's frightening. It puts terror in your heart to see this thing, which speaks of the, the authority in this image. But it's an authority that's become twisted, that's become corrupt, that's become oppressive, that's become dangerous. Now I know to speak of it in just these general terms, it's very hard for us to connect with what exactly is happening here. But I think that what, is, what it's speaking of or what it captures is all of what man was meant to be now fallen into corruption and degeneration and friends, that, in a sense, 
is not just an image of those ancient empires. It's an image of what you build with your life when your life is built on anything but Christ. When we seek to run after ambitions to glorify ourselves, it may be on a different scale to Nebuchadnezzar, but it's the exact same basic impulse, isn't it? When we seek to make life about ourselves so that all of life turns in on us and we're the center of our own existence, then really we're establishing the image of our own lives, but it's a twisted and a corrupt image. It's no different in quality, even if it is different in size and quantity, than what Nebuchadnezzar and the emperors were doing. This is man worshipping man. This is you worshipping yourself. This is you making you Lord of your own life and existence. The minute that you sin, this is what you're doing. The minute that you walk away from Christ, this is what you're becoming. When you pursue a dream with your life that's not a dream that God has given you and that you're making it about yourself, this is what you're building. This image you're reconstructing just on a tiny, tiny scale compared to what Daniel was seeing. And so the warning comes in in the dream because the image, man in his pride, man in his arrogance, man in his hubris, man in his self-glorifying instincts gets humbled to the ground in three ways. The first is that you get a sense, Daniel communicates very clearly where the greatness comes from in the first place. Do you see in verse um, 37 how Daniel addresses Nebuchadnezzar? He says, you, O king, the king of kings. Sounds immediately like he's flattering Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't it? Except really he's just speaking a fact, a statement of fact, that Nebuchadnezzar ruled over many, many kings. He was the most powerful man at the time. But then, it's very loaded as you read on. He says, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. Nebuchadnezzar is listening to every word that this, this nobody is saying to him. This nobody is saying to him that the only reason that you have power at all is because God gave it to you. Now think about the implication of that. It means that if you're a person with gifts and abilities, opportunities and ambitions, you have nothing that God didn't give to you in the first place. So when we try and make a success of our lives and make success our idol, but we forget that every opportunity and gift was a gift of grace from God in the first place. God humbles us by causing us to recognize that what do you have that you didn't receive in the first place from him? There is no such thing on a biblical point of view, as a self-made man. You didn't get to choose your opportunities. You were born into them. You didn't get to choose your gifts. They were given to you from above. There is no such thing as a self-made man. And so the image is getting chipped at by that, first of all. Do you realize that the glory you have was a gift? God gave it to you, Nebuchadnezzar. Second way is this. You look at how the image begins to degenerate. It goes from gold, you can think of the Olympics, from gold to silver to bronze, and then 
somehow bringing up the rump is iron and then iron mixed with clay. And really what this captures for us is something very true historically of what would happen with these successive empires, but also what's true always of everything that man ever builds. That it, it's subject to this kind of degeneration and decay and fragmentation. So that no matter what you do with your life, how big, how great, how magnificent, how worthy of the worship of others, eventually it's going to become corrupted and broken. We see it at the biggest scale, don't we, all through history. You just read about kingdoms and empires and how they they break up and they fragment. You look at Britain, it, it wasn't that long ago, almost within living memory, that Britain was the most powerful nation on the planet. And now, we're something different, aren't we? And in fact, I think in many ways, power is leaking and fragmenting all the time. It seems to me that the way history works is that great men arise, and women, and it's like a wave crashing on the shore. But no sooner has it crashed on the shore than things begin to recede quickly and disappear into the sea. You see it not just at the level of kingdoms and empires, but also in companies. You remember when... You know, that monopolizing search engine arose on the scene with that, that uh, um, motto, do no evil. And uh, no sooner has, has Google conquered the world than suddenly we're finding about some of the evil things that's happening <laughs> through um, working with corrupt and dicta- dictatorial governments and things like this. And you're thinking, well, man's best intentions, they crash onto the shore to build something big and then suddenly things begin to fragment as you get ugly and corrupt. And friends, it's not just happening at that scale. It happens in your own life, in your own families. How sometimes you see one generation do something great, but how often is it that the children are so ungrateful and corrupted by the opportunities they have, and rarely do they carry on the greatness from one generation to the next, and certainly not to the third or to the fourth generation. And if it's true at that level, it's going to be true even in your own life to build something that God doesn't have his blessing on is going to allow it to become degenerate, corrupted, broken. And then it gets humbled in a third way because what we hear here is how this image is smashed to smithereens. Daniel is very bold in the way that he's speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. You see in verse 39, it says, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. Now you, may, you probably just skipped over that line when you read it the first time. And didn't, didn't particularly register. But do you realize the weight of what he's saying to Nebuchadnezzar? Another kingdom after you. Which is to say, Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, a paranoid person might find in those words something of a threat from the man speaking it. You're not going to be on that throne forever. Something's coming after you. Daniel never pulls back from speaking the truth, it seems. But it doesn't just get worse as like, oh, your kingdom's just going to shuffle to one side and something else is going to take its place. As the story moves on, what we see is the picture of the image being absolutely smashed to smithereens. And it begs the question, what are you building with your life? How many people pause and actually think about that, I wonder? It seems that 
You didn't get much choice about the schools you went into and then maybe you saw a career advisor and they told you what you ought to do and then you went into the job and then you, you got your job and started working hard and then you thought, I need to get buy a house. You buy a house and you have some babies and then you, you, you're saving for retirement and all these things. No one stops and thinks, why? Why am I doing any of this and who am I doing it for? The weight of this picture is to tell you that when it's not done for God, it's going to be broken in the end. Utterly corrupted and smashed. And yes, there's a sense of danger in those words, a sense of something heavy about that. But listen, let's move on, because with that, Daniel then speaks words of hope. He starts talking about this other kingdom. And we're told that this new kingdom has five features, which I want to run through with you very quickly before we understand the implication. Just bear with me here. The first is that it's divinely created. It says in verse 34 that a stone was cut out by no human hand. In other words, God's having a role in this final kingdom that he's describing here. It says, verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, which begins immediately to just plant the seed of hope. If God's doing something, then this is about his saving plan. The second thing is that it has conquering power. Because he says in verse 34 that this stone struck the image. This stone carved from a mountain knocked the image on its feet. It sets up this vibration that goes through the image. And it has this picture of this conquering power. It says down in verse 44 that... Um, It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. It's a real threat, in other words, to what exists. And that is a good thing. I said at the beginning, if God didn't have something critical to say to the world in which we live, then he's not a God worthy of worship because the world in which we live is broken. And if God's kingdom is not a real and present threat to the kingdoms of this world, and in fact, to the kingdom of your own life, then it's not good news. But the fact that this stone has this conquering power to come and smash everything in its path speaks of God's goodness to smash and rebuild something better than what we see around us. The third feature here is that it is worldwide. It says of the stone in verse 35 that it became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. Friends, this is one of my most favorite verses in the whole Bible. I'll tell you why. Because when I read the Bible and I begin to understand God's intention for his church and his kingdom, I feel nothing but optimism. Yes, there are moments where we see recession and you see God's people shrink to a minority or a remnant, as it's called in the Bible, but you always see the explosive new force of God's power breaking in on the world, conquering new ground. We spent, when we began this church plant, we worked through Matthew 13, where I read from the beginning, and and Jesus describes there the mustard seed that goes into the soil. It's the smallest of all the seeds in the garden. And it produces the biggest tree in which the birds come and nest and, and, and take their shelter. You look forward to the end of the story in the book of Revelation. And what do you see? But a, a, a multitude that says no one could number. 
You couldn't count all these people from every tribe, tongue, nation, worshiping the Lamb. This is what Daniel's hinting at. And it would be arrogant, wouldn't it, for an exiled, captured slave in the face of the most powerful man in the world to say there's going to be a kingdom of which, implicitly, he's saying, I'm a part of it, that's going to be bigger than all the kingdoms of the world put together. But do you know it's happening? I only read last week that... um, In 1979, before the revolution in Iran, there were about 500 believers in Jesus from Muslim backgrounds. So Iranians who'd converted to to Christianity and become Christians. About 500. It's negligible, isn't it? It's like a few of these churches put together. You could could probably know everyone if if you took the time to. Do you know today... Since the revolution, since the, the rise of the Ayatollahs and all the kind of, you know, the oppression of the church in Iran, you'd think that that 500 would be snuffed out like a cigarette, just rubbed into the ground and ignored and become a relic of history. But on the contrary, conservative estimates are that there's something like 360,000 Muslim background believers in Jesus today. In Iran. I know some of the people who are having a mighty impact seeing them come to faith. You think, I just think what they're doing is extraordinary. You see it the same pattern all the world around. At the moment, ISIS is, they're slaughtering Christians and exiling Christians who trace their roots back to the very early centuries. These guys were Christians before Islam existed. And they passed on their faith through generation after generation. But now they're being snuffed out in places like Iraq and Syria. And they're, 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 pretty soon there'll be none left. And you think, wow, how could the church of God be conquering when we see it being you know, wiped out by a few men in masks doing brutal stuff? And the answer is, well, you know, ISIS is just a blip on the radar. What they don't see is the tsunami of Christ following radical, saved people coming from the East, where God has been at work in China. And you see the mountain. It was a stone, but friends, the mountain is is already in existence. Just open your eyes. Can you see that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is already the biggest kingdom in this world? There's nothing to compare with what Jesus is doing in the world. And it's only growing, it's only increasing, it's only going to get more glorious. And then there's a fourth feature, which maybe I should have dealt with earlier, which is that this had small beginnings. Because he just talks about it as this little stone chipped off a mountain. It's like a man just goes with his chisel and knocks off a little, little pebble and pulls away a piece of mountain. Like you might do if you were a tourist visiting Mount Everest. Puts it in his pocket And that stone, which speaks of the roughness in comparison to the image, so perfectly molded, so beautiful in its glory, the stone is just a rough piece of rock, insignificant, easy to ignore. It has these small beginnings, but you begin to see the resonance of what it is. Jesus talked about himself as the cornerstone of the new kingdom. 
And he says, unless... He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces when it falls on anyone. It will crush him. Such arrogant words from one man in the back corner of Palestine, it would seem, except that they've all come true. Jesus was just this humble beginning, small beginnings, which then gives us the reason the verification, the confirmation for the fifth feature about this kingdom, which is that it is everlasting. It says in verse 44 that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And it goes on to say it shall stand forever. If any of you are in any way skeptical about Jesus, about the church, and about what God is doing in the world. And about whether the whole thing will last. All you have to do is look at how the first four features have all been shown to be true. And it gives us ample confirmation that the last one is true. This thing is never going to get destroyed. We know it because it's all happened. I don't know if you understand the history of this, this picture but the four empires that were described here were, as it unfolded, initially Babylon, then Medo-Persia, and then the Greek Empire, which arose in about 331 BC with, with uh, Alexander the Great conquering the whole world and dying in his late 20s. And then, in about 64 BC, the rise of the, of the Roman Empire, which brings us to the iron, and the iron mixed with clay. And you know it also coincides with what historians call the rise of the iron age. And then the stone, Jesus born in the midst of the Roman Empire. How could Daniel know any of this stuff? He couldn't, could he? Even the latest dates that people put on this book, and some skeptics put it much later, still don't account for what the accuracy of what he says here. It cannot. And I think there's no reason to suppose he didn't write this in, in the 600s or in the late, in the early 500s. Friends, what it means for us is that if you're a Christian, you know the end of the story. And that ought to give you such confidence to keep bringing your life to Jesus and saying, I trust you with everything that I am. We're stupid, aren't we, to hold back? And if you're not a Christian, it, it forces you almost as if you were Nebuchadnezzar on this day when he was confronted by Daniel. It forces you to stop and think and reflect. If all of this is true, what do I need to do in response to it? Because you can't read the stuff and ignore it. It has a, a life-changing implication to it, doesn't it? It's true, that's true of you if you're not a Christian. It's true of you if you are a Christian and you've been wrestling with matters of obedience to Jesus. He wants you to be confronted again with the realities of what he's doing and what he's building and understand that nothing else even comes close. Which brings us on to my last point, the response. Nebuchadnezzar, let me summarize it for you like this. You need to surrender your life to Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar wasted his opportunity. 
he seems impressive in his reaction, but it's actually a very confused reaction to all of this. Because first of all, did you notice he began by worshipping Daniel? It says he fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and offered incense and offerings to Daniel as though Daniel were a god. Then he starts worshipping Daniel's gods, calling him the god of gods and the lord of kings and revealer of mysteries. Fine, he's been impressed by Yahweh. But then in the next chapter, he, he makes an image, an actual image, for people to bow down to and worship him. So this guy is seriously confused. He's impressed with God, just as people today can be impressed with Jesus. But he's not really let the full implications hit his life. So what he does is he gives into what you can call syncretism, which is where people take a little bit of Jesus and mix him with whatever else they believe. Now more often than not, sometimes that's the case of people being into all kinds of weird religious syncretism. But more often than not, I think, for your average person in Britain today or your average Londoner, if they like something about Jesus or if they like going to church, the syncretism that they engage in is the syncretism of living a double life. I'll I'll give lip service to Jesus on Sunday. But in reality, my life is still about myself. It's still about what I'm building, what I'm doing. That's Nebuchadnezzar to a T. Because the very next minute, it seems, chapter 3, as we'll see, God willing, next week, he's back to self-worship. It's like the person who skips out of church on Sunday feeling refreshed, and then the minute they wake up on Monday, ambition hits in, and they're they're building something for themselves. Jesus Christ calls for something more absolute. more deep. He calls for a humility which acknowledges his greatness above everything that you could build with your life. To put it in the words of Psalm 2, kiss the son, lest he be angry. There's an element of threat there. There's an element of danger there. But There's also the invitation. Jesus is always calling people, you can know me, you can love me, you can live for me because I'm your creator, I made you. I'm worthy of your worship. He calls again and again in the Gospels, he calls for total surrender of your life. You remember in Mark chapter 8, how he puts it like this. He says, whoever, he says, in fact, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I think that, was basically the opportunity God was giving to Nebuchadnezzar. If you get to see what happens to the kingdom you're building, you get a glimpse into the future, then you get an opportunity to change course and start to be a true worshipper of God. And Jesus says the exact same thing to you. He says, he goes on and says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Do you want to do anything genuinely, lastingly, truly of significance with the life, the short life that you've been given, then devote it all entirely, emotions, heart, will to Jesus. You may wrestle with doubts about the specifics of his way of doing things. Why is it, God, that you, made, you, you call us to obey you in this way? Why is it that I've got to give that up? Why is it so hard, in other words? 
But faith is always laying before God what you find difficult to embrace his promises. That's the opportunity that Jesus is giving us when he says, whoever would save his life will lose it. In other words, if you want to hold on to everything, you're going to lose it in the end, like Nebuchadnezzar. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels, if you can willingly let it go, you'll save it. Friends, it comes with the most... with promises that can't fade. In John 12, Jesus puts it like this, similar kind of language. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. Now listen, hear these words as though he's saying them to you right now. Truly, truly, I say to you. Unless a grain of wheat, a picture of your life, falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, in other words, it gets put into the ground as though it were dead, covered with soil and forgotten about. If it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The promise of Christ is that you can be part of what he's building, the mountain, if you keep slaying the image. You get that exchange. Unless you think that maybe God's intentions for you are for harm and not for good. I love how this passage ends in Daniel 2. And how when it's all ended, you think, well, Daniel here, he's just a tiny fragment of the kingdom that God's about to build. And God starts showing the kind of honor that he's going to give to his kingdom by honoring Daniel and his friends. It tells us at the very end of the chapter that the king gave Daniel high honors and many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. And Daniel gets his friends in and says, oh, can you give them jobs as well? Dear friends, this is such a beautiful picture to us of what it is to lay your life down for Christ. Yeah, you've got to give stuff up. Yes, you've got to kill things in your heart. But you lay it down, he gives you more than you could imagine. He wants to do something with your life. But he wants it to be what he's doing, not what you're doing. He's the sovereign Lord after all. How is God calling on you to repent today? What does he want you to take up? What's he calling on you to kill? 